All right, let's get into our text. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And that's page 849 in your pew Bible. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive their greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people came, many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, some of us with uh, very heavy hearts, just knowing what our nation is going through with um, the conflict that has happened in Charlottesville and also just the things that are happening globally with countries threatening war or not striving for peace. And so, Lord, we ask for your spirit to fill us to truly see you and to imitate you. Lord, would you speak through your word to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Right before our text uh, this morning, starting in verse 35, let's take a look at verse 34, and um, it ends like this. And after, no one dared ask him any more questions. The, The religious leaders have been challenging Jesus for quite some time now, and they challenged him before he entered into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry uh, and in chapter 11. And, and since that time, we've seen a series of challenges from various religious leaders toward Jesus. The first of these is found in chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 27. It reads, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Following this was uh, confrontation after confrontation with this intent of trapping Jesus or or discrediting Jesus with, with questions they thought that he couldn't possibly answer. And yet Jesus does, without contradiction, even though they are seeking this greater conflict to, to, to rouse a greater conflict amongst the crowd or amongst those who are listening and following Jesus, they weren't able to do that. We find that Jesus answered all of those 
ill-intentioned questions really, really well. And it seems that these guys have come to the conclusion that they aren't going to be able to challenge Jesus on any religious grounds or spiritual, moral, ethical, legal grounds. So they're going to have to regroup and they're going to have to try a different tactic, which is what we're going to get to in the, in the future weeks. So there aren't any more questions from the religious leaders here, but Jesus does have a question for the, the, the throng that is following him, according to verse 37. And, and so they listened to him, and they listened to him gladly, as the scriptures tell us. Now, of course, they loved listening to Jesus, because in the past series of challenges, Jesus has put the scribes, elders, chief priests, Sadducees, Herodians, Pharisees, he's put all of them in their place. And so this is probably quite enjoyable to these people who have been abused by the religious leadership, whether it be cheating them on uh, the money exchange or to purchase sacrifices at highly marked prices in the temple or just the religious oppression that they've been feeling because they weren't part of the religious aristocracy. Whatever the reasons, people, people heard Jesus gladly and understandably so, and Jesus went on to ask a question that he doesn't go about answering because it's a, a rhetorical question. And so here we are, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is actually a, a pretty good question, a really difficult question question to answer, but rather easy to answer if Jesus Christ is indeed Messiah. So where did Jesus even get this question? We look to Psalm 110, which is a messianic song, psalm. It, 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 it's speaking of the Christ. It's speaking of the Messiah. So Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so essentially this is Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus used Psalm 110 as the basis for this rhetorical question. Now I want to point out something significant in verse 36 of Mark chapter 12, and it's this phrase, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, David declared David wrote Psalm 110. And so God revealed, he inspired, he declared to write his word down by the Holy Spirit. The words that David spoke, that David wrote down, were God's words. This is what is written in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When we talk about inspired by God, it, it, it means that it was breathed out by God. Now, I know that we've heard about artists or athletes or people who have been inspired by a number of things. But when we talk about inspired by God, it is talking about God breathed. And what we have in the Bible is God's word in written form. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 15. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, why did Jesus point out this question to the scribes? Because the, the scribes believed the scriptures were the word of God. They believed that. They, they shared the same view of God that it is God-inspired. The word of God is God-breathed, the word of God. They believed that the word of God pointed to Messiah to come. They, they knew that it was inspired by God. What, what inspired by God meant was that it was breathed by God. It wasn't simply how we use a keyboard to type words on our Google Docs or, you know, it, it's inspired by God is more than having ears to listen to what God says and then just using our fingers to record it. See, see the authors of the Bible weren't simply just court reporters just responding to what they're hearing and then putting it down. It's, it's not that linear. The Holy Spirit spoke his divine words through human offers, authors in this divine way that the author's words were God's words. The, the gospel writers, the, the apostle Paul, they weren't just dictating God's spoken word or just translating whatever language God used into their Greek language. That's not what was happening. Take a look at Luke's gospel in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, Listen to this again. Having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Now, why would Luke have to take time to follow things closely and compile a narrative from eyewitnesses? I mean, couldn't God just tell him what to write down? God could have. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. See, God chose Luke to write his gospel account with Luke's personality, with his occupation in mind, with his penchant for detail, with the cultural context that he had, with his knowledge of history, and as Luke wrote, God inspired. Back to Mark chapter 12, the, the scribes knew Messiah would come through the lineage of David, which Jesus did come from. And so Jesus asked this question as a descendant of David. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself calls him Lord? So how is he his son? It seems kind of contradictory, especially in a culture where forefathers are so revered. You know, a father calling his son Lord. I mean, that's, that's never going to happen. But someone recognized Jesus as the son of David, even if the scribes refused to believe this. You remember back a, a chapter or two, you remember this blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. It's in Mark chapter 10. He said in Mark 10 verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What did blind Bartimaeus see 
that the scribes could not see. Son of David is a title for Messiah. He saw Jesus as Messiah's as Messiah, while the scribes did not see this. Why couldn't they see Jesus as the son of David or the son of man, even though they recognized those titles as titles of Messiah? Because they they had a very different view of what Messiah would do. They had this idea that Christ would be more nationalistic. They, they thought Messiah would overthrow this Roman oppression and put the Jews back into power politically and socially and as a nation. And Jesus didn't come as a nationalist. He came as Savior. And, of course, as Savior, Jesus did address things politically. And you look at world history and you can see how Jesus has influenced the world of politics. But he didn't come as a politician. He came as Savior. And in accordance to the scriptures, Messiah will come down from the lineage of David, hence the son of David. But he's not just the son of David. He is the son of man, and he is the son of God. He is son of David and son of God. Back to Psalm 110. He's David's Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus himself said he is the Christ. When the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, Jesus replied with this in verse 62. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. David's earthly son in Jesus, a descendant of David in the flesh, existed before David as his Lord. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. David's Lord is the Son of God, Jesus, who was also the descendant of David in the flesh. Romans 1, starting in verse 3. Concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why am I even talking about this for so long? Why does any of this even matter? Because if anyone can't see that Jesus is the Christ, it's proof that you don't know who God is if you don't recognize this. John chapter 14, verses 6 through 7, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This revelation that Jesus is the Christ is the only way to God, and it's only revealed to us by the grace of God. When Peter realized that Jesus is the Christ. It wasn't by his own flesh and blood that he figured that out. Matthew records for us in Matthew 16, 16, when Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the identity of Jesus as Christ, as Savior, hinges everything a follower of Jesus believes. He's either Messiah who did come to save us from our sins, which would have, have 
which it would have otherwise resulted in this eternal separation from God, or the Bible is all a lie. And there's nothing that I could do out of my flesh and my blood to convince you of anything. I can't convince you that Jesus is the Christ. Your only hope is to humble yourself for just a moment and ask God to reveal that to you, to reveal who Jesus really is. Even but for a second, if you would do that. You see that that blind beggar Bartimaeus saw Jesus for who he really is, Savior. Simon Peter saw Jesus for who he really is, the Christ. The scribes, who were extremely intelligent, very religious, who knew the scriptures really, really well, couldn't see it. Couldn't see Jesus as the Christ. And so after this rhetorical question regarding the son of David, who is also David's Lord, Jesus then moved to warning the people about these very scribes and commending this anonymous lady, which would have seemed kind of odd. But that isn't anything new with Jesus, right? He's come time and time again to show us that the ways of the kingdom are very different from our earthly kingdoms, that it's very paradoxical. So for example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, he said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It is a paradoxical statement. Here's another one, Mark 9, 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It is just counterintuitive to think this way. So Jesus continues these kingdom of God values and and ways of life through the example of of two ladies. One is here at the end of chapter 12, and and it's going to better contrast her love of God with the scribes that we just talked about who are challenging Jesus, and Jesus is giving them this rhetorical question. And the other lady we will get to several weeks from now when we get to chapter 14. But let's get into verse 38 here. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. See, the scribes were a really, really bright bunch of guys, very, very well-read, dedicated to knowing the scriptures, and the way that they interpreted the scriptures was actually quite conservative, and it wouldn't be a stretch to label them as fundamentalists because their knowledge of the scriptures, they, 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 they were kind of looked at by their community um, to be a help that helped them to, to, to God, to help them understand the scriptures. But even though people looked to them for this spiritual guidance, their teaching wasn't something that was put into practice that Jesus pointed out. Rather than the people who practice generosity, genuineness, and humbleness, they lived these lives that were quite the opposite of what the scriptures were teaching. Jesus said this about the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, starting in verse 2. A little bit more detail about them. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. 
but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor of, at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So these guys were a pretty prideful bunch. See, they wanted to stick out from everyone else to show that they were religious. So they wore these really long robes, these broad phylacteries you know, on their foreheads, these long fringes, these tassels coming out of their robes. So whenever they were in public, they wanted to be recognized for who they were. They wanted to be classified as these special religious people amongst the people. And when they went to these places of worship, the synagogue, they wanted to be in these places of prominence, which in the synagogue would be the seat in front of the vessel where the Torah was placed. And that seat faced in a different direction from everyone else. And while everyone was facing one way, this seat faced everyone else so that everyone could see them in all of their religious garb and, and beauty and all this stuff. And so when they went to a feast, they went to sit at the places of honor so that they could be seen by everyone. So it's just a very prideful place. I've been fighting the elders about this for years. I want these seats back up here that have like lion heads and all this kind of stuff. They were all here. They're leather, rich redwood. There's like three of them. So um, I would sit in the center one, of course, and, um, you know, and then Jane and Steve, and we'd be up here with our robes and stuff like that, you know, but they said no. But these are, they're a greedy bunch of folks. They devour widows' houses, is what it says. So those who were very vulnerable in that society and who were to be protecting those who were vulnerable, but they weren't protected by these religious leaders. And actually, they were being taken advantage of. See, scribes back in that day, they weren't paid to be a scribe. They had other jobs. But they used this position as a scribe to manipulate people. So, so they'd pray these long prayers for people, widows. And they prayed these long prayers in exchange for some shekels. So now I don't know if people paid them so that they would stop their long prayers and get out of their house or, or not, but, but they got paid for these services that they were doing. And so it was, it was greedy. And this hypocrisy of the scribes not practicing what they preached received this rebuke from Jesus. But he, he noticed something really different about this poor widow at the treasury. And he noticed this humble, generous, genuine person of faith there. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Historians record for us that there were actually 13 boxes in the treasury, and they were designated for different things. Eleven of them were for various offerings of money, and then there were two that were set aside at the gate for a tax, like a temple tax and things like that. And so they, they were these trumpet-shaped contraptions that, that were made out of metal, and so it kind of started smaller at the top of the mouth, and then it kind of opened up into a, a chest, these offering chests. And so since these trumpets, they were, they were made of metal, when these metal coins would be dumped into this, this 
hole, this receptacle, and the coins would hit them, you'd hear what was going down into this thing and it would kind of echo because it would get louder as it was a bigger funnel or an upside down funnel and then into this box. And so, you know, it uh, would sound like a slot machine. You know, like ding, 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 or if you've ever been to Japan with that game, uh, I don't remember, it starts with a P, I think, Plunko or whatever. Yeah, whoever said that, you, you gambling person there, you know, you know. <laughs> you, you know what it is. See, I don't, so. Um, so many people put in these, you know, large sums of money, and so how was this known? You, you could hear it. Like, and you'd hear this stuff. And so now there was this chamber, though, that was known as this chamber of the silent. And the chamber of the silent could be used to secretly deposit money, but many of the rich didn't want to do that because then no one would be able to hear the ching, 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 ching. So they didn't do that. And so nothing wrong with rich people giving large sums of money to the church, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus did not condemn that. Secret chambers right back here, by the way. Just go right there. See, those offerings provided for the worship of the people. It paid for all the materials of the temple. It provided for all the many social causes that the temple was outdoing, like providing for education and food and care for those who needed it. And, and those offerings did a lot of good for the community. So, so Jesus wasn't condemning the rich for giving. If Jesus wasn't doing that, then what was he doing? Well, Jesus has been teaching that what is valued in the kingdom of God isn't always the same thing that is valued in our earthly kingdoms. And here's another example of this. Jesus pointed out that what we see in terms of quantity isn't what's most valuable, which is what many people would think when we are dealing with money. We usually think that quantity is the most important result. And you, you kind of look, you kind of see that now with all the thermometers that are in front of schools and they have a number and they're looking at quantity, right? They're looking at the quantity of this. And so Jesus pointed out that what this poor widow gave was extremely significant. It wouldn't have helped the thermometer move all that much, but very important. And we tend to think that in order to make a huge impact, we need huge amounts of money. Now, verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to him, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who can, are contributing to the offering box. All? All those rich people? It's more than that? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? One penny is more than everything that has come into the treasury? That is definitely not quantity. But she gave all she had. Verse 44, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now for some of us, you know, giving $1,000, it would hurt. We, we would miss that. Right? That, that would hurt. Some of us would miss that a lot. $1,000. And then there are others who... You wouldn't miss it at all. It's just, it's not a big deal. It's just sitting there for you to give and you could do it and you can afford to give it and you wouldn't miss it at all. Now this widow gave what she really couldn't afford. She gave all of that. 
while the rich gave out of their abundance. See, they gave what was left in the change jar. Right? They gave what was left while this poor widow gave out of what she was going to use for lunch, and without it, she wasn't going to eat. It didn't cost them anything, and it cost her everything. You know, it's, um, there was this chicken and this cow, and they wanted to go into business together. Um, and so the cow asked the chicken, hey, um, what kind of business uh, should we go into? And the chicken said, you know what, let's open up a diner, and we'll serve steak and eggs. And the cow said, wait a minute, steak and eggs? See, the chicken's just contributing eggs. The cow is making a sacrifice. It's going to cost. So the cow and the chicken, they decided to part ways. And so that's how Chick-fil-A got started. And the cow went on and the eat more chicken campaign, and he did all this kind of stuff, and so it's very, very tenuous now. Anyway, the rich contributed. The rich contributed. The, the widow made a sacrifice, a sacrificial. In proportion to what she had, it was a huge sacrifice. It's not just about quantity. When people talk about giving, much of the time people talk about how much they give. Don't get me wrong, how much you give is really important, but here's the better question. How much do you have left? How much do you have left? See, giving to God is more about sacrifice than it is about contribution, and the the widow's two copper coins are what got Jesus' attention. It wasn't the rich. God sees what we give and what we hold back. He sees it all. And we're not hiding anything from him. He sees this and, and he knows. We might fool other people in what we give, but we don't fool God. It's God who gave us all that we have anyway, right? It, it was from him. He, he doesn't need it. it It's actually just a form of worship from us. It's a form of spiritual discipline from us to overcome pride, to overcome greed, to overcome hypocrisy. And God isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. See, he he gave us his all. He gave us his only son. He sacrificed for our sins that we can commune with God for everlasting. Jesus became poor so that we can become rich. One of the ways that we recognize Jesus as the son of David, the son of God, the Christ, is through our sacrificial giving. To show that our faith is approved, evidence of our, of our faith in God for provision. It's this opportunity for us to grow in humility, to grow in generosity and sincerity. It's, it's not just this religious show that we are imitating Jesus who gave of himself completely. And as we get to know the character of Christ more and more, that we become imitators of Jesus. When you walked in the door, you received a bulletin, and you also received this card. In this card, we've highlighted four partners that we at Regeneration give to. 
1951 is on there, uh, serving the refugees. Missio Day serves a bunch of the at-risk youth right here in the community. Alex has been doing an amazing job. Um, at one of his home church Bible studies, uh, one of the kids accidentally shot a friend and killed him. And so now that kid's in jail uh, for manslaughter. Um, but he's dealing with a different population of, of kids. You know, when they enter into a home church, they have to check all their weapons at the door. So all the guns, the knives, the brass knuckles, whatever they bring have to be checked in and onto a tray. Alex puts them away, and then at the end of the night, he gives them back, and then they can go back out again. And Alex is serving that community. Back to 1951. 1951 um, just won a Starbucks grant to serve refugees, and they're going to be expanding to San Diego next. That's where um, they want them to go. And so uh, it's been so great to have this partnership. They were going through another cohort, I believe, right now um, in the cafe, and er I think it's once a month. There's this new cohort that goes through. Um, 1951 is hiring who they can, but those that they can't, they've partnered with other cafes around the area like Blue Bottle and getting refugees jobs. Um, Throughout the supply chain of coffee, it's not just as barista, they're they're trying to look at this more broad. And then after San Diego, they're looking at Washington, D.C. and Seattle, and they're looking to expand this refugee outreach throughout the nation. We've also highlighted Oakland Leadership Center. This is led by Nate Milheim. Nate is hosting basketball uh, camps and coaching at our gym now. Um, but we're hoping to partner with them even further. Nate is reaching out to a community in East Oakland that many aren't, um, changing the lives of a lot of guys, and so helping them to develop skills so that they can do more than just what they used to be doing. And so some of the guys are really talented basketball players, and he's helping them come out with a business plan so that they can actually start training people to to play basketball and to do something more for their community to to help all the other kids in their community. They're they're trying to raise money to hire Wayne, who was my roommate when we did a a Ferguson pilgrimage a couple years ago. Um, And Wayne's, Wayne's a great guy, really loves these other guys. He came from the streets. He knows exactly where these guys are coming from. They want to hire him and they want to get a van or a larger SUV so that they can take these guys outside of this concrete jungle to experience something more. I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of these kids that we come in contact with in deep East Oakland, they haven't been outside of Oakland, not even to the beach in Alameda. So Nate wants to open this up to start bringing these kids to experiencing other things more than just their street corners and, and just their different streets that they're around. Andrew Park leads an organization called Tribe. Tribe has been here for, for many, many years, and he works with a broad spectrum of people from East Oakland. And so it's essentially focusing on a small group of people, and when their needs arise, he goes in there and he helps those families. So whether it's single-parent homes or kids raising themselves or kids who are incarcerated and their parents don't know what to do. Whatever it may be, he's there. 
We highlighted these four because usually when people or churches talk about like this might story and we talk about generosity and giving, um, I know that defensive walls go up and your red flags start going up. Oh, the church is just asking us for more money. We are. (laughs) If you have an inkling of discomfort and you think that regeneration is asking you for money, give to one of these or to something else that you want. But this is just kind of a guidance. We've vetted these people. We've been in partnership with them for years. Um, If you feel like, no, I want to support our church because our church feeds... I don't know how many homeless were there this morning. 70, 80? Uh, Last week, my eldest daughter cracked 300 eggs with Mark Enemoto for the breakfast there. Your, Your funds go to that. Your funds go to all these organizations that the church is supporting. 10% of all of our income that comes in goes back out. You support that by supporting the church. So if you have any inkling of that discomfort or you're thinking, oh, no, Regeneration just wants our church our money, then don't give to us. Then give to one of these. It's really about you and overcoming the greed, overcoming the pride, overcoming whatever it is that holds you back from exercising something that is beyond yourself to break yourself of these bonds that perhaps are holding you back from doing these things. There's a cool story um, about Oakland Leadership Center also. Um, we're always looking for opportunities. I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I like thinking of all these ways. I frustrate our elders to no end with these ideas. Um, one of the ideas, though, was, was good. It was good. One of them was in partnership with Oakland Leadership Center, and we pray for the Golden State Warriors to win every year um, because OLC makes a lot of money when they win. Because as you know, the parade's just right out here, right? So our parking lot's right here, and so we, we charge to park. I said charge $1,000 per space, <laughs> um, which I'm still going to try to do next year. I'm like, Nate, you got to you got to be ahead of this thing. Go to all your donors and send the email out and tell them it's a 1000 bucks a spot and it's to help Oakland Leadership Center. Don't just wait for a guy to drive up. They're not going to have a 1000 bucks in their pocket. Right? So anyway, so he's like, oh, do 20 Nate, come on. Think bigger. Anyway, they raised, I think, six or 800 bucks just from the parking lot. And they did it twice because, you know, they've only won twice. So what are we going to pray? in the future, keep winning, and then OLC. So the church is always working to see how we can partner with folks. Um, With 1951, uh, they have an electrician, plumber coming in this week. Um, They've been really great. They got a donation of a a new espresso machine that you guys will get to enjoy um, from La La Marcosa, and that's gonna be coming in, I don't know when. You can talk to Doug about that, he's in the hat. But, a lot of cool things are happening with all the different partnerships that we're a part of. So today, 
um, we're, we're not asking you to put down regeneration or anything like that or getting any recognition from us, from these organizations. They already know that we're, we're with them. We're, we're championing them. We're for them. But whatever the Lord's laying on your heart, it's a time to overcome some of that greed that may be harbored in there. Overcome some of that disingenuineness. Overcoming pride. And to use a spiritual discipline like giving to start in, into that path. Let's pray. Lord, we are very thankful that you've showered us with provision and abundance. God, we are not in need of the quantity of money, but we are in need of just that transformation to have a like heart and a like mind and a like spirit of the widow. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone who may be struggling with that, that perhaps it's more towards a scribe or more towards the rich that we're just throwing in a load of money into those offering boxes, that we would be transformed from those types of spirits into the one of the widow, into the one who broke a flask of pure nard, a life savings worth of work over to worship you, that we would be more like those ladies. Such a great example of who we desire to be who are in much more likeness to who you are. Lord, bless these organizations that we partner with and we ask God that um, they would be sensitive to your spirit and where you're leading. We are grateful for all of these partnerships. In Jesus' name, amen.